I can only imagine. Man, that song fires me up. I just uh, came from Kenai Grace, I'm preaching through the book of Revelation. On the day of the Lord and the great day of God's wrath is poured out and then Jesus comes. I'm fired up. And I have to preach about money now. Cut here. That's not by my choice. That is the choice of the Holy Spirit because that's the where it's put in the book of Revelation and that's why we preach expositorily by the most part through books of the Bible so that we might preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And part of that counsel this morning has to do with money. The story is told of a man who, after 20 years of marriage, decided to divorce his wife, uh, realizing that the settlement was going to be substantial. He began to rummage through old canceled checks. Wasn't long before he came to the faded yellow check to the lodge where they spent their honeymoon, the down payment on their first car, the hospital at the birth of their daughter, the first payment on their house. This journey through the recorded history of their marriage prompted him to realize that he was being selfish and he sought to restore his relationship. I know of no more reliable witness to the values of a person's life than the testimony of his checkbook. Our checkbook or debit card record or whatever tells the story of our life, our activities, our priorities, and our values. And that's why Jesus talks so much about money. Jesus said far more about money than he did heaven and hell combined. And one in every six words of the Gospels deals with the issue of stewardship, giving, uh, generosity, that kind of thing. And a a third of the parables address the issue. Jesus was not a fundraiser, but he addressed money because money matters. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction and abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability and yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, then to us by the will of God, So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Heavenly Father, I thank you 
For this text of Scripture that reminds us of the importance of diligence in the issue of generosity, of stewardship. I pray, Father, that our lives would be so impacted by Christ that our lives would be transformed, that generosity would just simply be a natural corollary to our life in Christ. I pray, Father, that as needed, you would apply the principles of this section of Scripture to our hearts and then to our lives. And I pray that you would be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> now, up to this point in the book of 2 Corinthians, first seven chapters, Paul was dealing with the false teachers that had come into Corinth, trying to diminish his teaching and destroy his teaching by attacking him. And he was put in the awkward position of having to defend himself and his apostleship. Now here, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, the issue of finances is being dealt with. It's kind of like Paul was saying, I need to mention this matter while I'm thinking of it, lest I forget. He had addressed it earlier in, uh, to this church. And what was the issue? The mother church in Jerusalem was in great need, and a coordinated effort to come to their aid was instituted by the apostles. In Acts 11 it says, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to their brethren dwelling in Judea. And in Romans 15 it, it references it. Uh, and elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul had previously addressed this need, and here is following up with specific instructions and encouragement. Now when the issue of money comes up, we often become defensive. Our prime, one of the primary reasons for this is an almost universal resistance to the idea of stewardship. Now stewardship is not the same as tithing or whatever. The com all too common Christian perspective is we give 10% to God and the rest is mine. But God owns it all. And he calls us to manage all the resources that he gives us for his glory. Listen to what God says about this. Job 41.11, God is speaking and he says, Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. And again, in Exodus, God is speaking. He says, all the earth is mine. And then the psalmist in Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and all those that dwell therein. Kind of reminds me of the old Sunday school song, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine, and that also includes you and me. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 6, or excuse me, 1 Deuteronomy uh, 8, 18, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives the power to get wealth. For those of us, we think, well, I worked hard, man. I slaved hard. At, I, I earned this money, and it's mine. God says, no, I gave you the ability to earn money. It's all grace. Everything of life is. And in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. The price was not corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1.18 
1 Timothy 6, 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. So aren't you glad that we can send treasures ahead? Jesus said we could. And one of those treasures that we can send ahead as our life is transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ is a generous, grateful stewardship of our life and all of our assets and belongings, including our talents and our time, to the glory of God. John Wesley put it this way, when the possessor of heaven and earth brought you into being and placed you in this world, he placed you here not as an owner, but as a steward, one who manages the assets of another. When we grasp that truth, it will revolutionize our lives. Four little words. God owns it all. Become a steward. Let go. Become a steward, not a possessor. And that is essentially what the Apostle Paul was saying to the Corinthians. The Corinthians had begun well. They desired to be good stewards. The Jerusalem believers desperately needed their help. God was calling upon them to be stewards. A year ago, they were enthusiastic in their response. <clears throat> but now they had become, begun to tighten their grip. Their passion had grown a bit cold. Like the little love song says, too many moonlight kisses have grown cold in the warmth of the sun. Their moonlight kiss on this project had grown cold with the passing of time. So Paul sent Titus to stir them up. Remember, God owns it all. There is great need elsewhere. Complete what you have begun. <clears throat> now, the Apostle Paul uses four groups of people to make his point. And the first group of people were what we'll call poor people. Throughout Scripture, Scripture is, describes giving as a gift of His grace primarily for the benefit of the giver. And when we begin to understand that, uh, we can let go. The first thing that we see here is the spiritual source of giving. It is a grace of God. And he says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, and stop right there. Moreover, brethren. He didn't say those of you that have a lot of resources or those of you that don't have anybody. He didn't distinguish between the haves and the have-nots. The grace of giving is available to all believers. And Paul essentially says three things about these Macedonians. The grace of giving was, first of all, a supernatural in its source. It is a grace that God gives to his, to his own. And when we understand that, the rest will follow. In the case of the wretchedly poor Macedonians, they gave with a sacrificial spirit. Verse 2, In great trial of affliction, in abundance of joy, out of their deep poverty, they abounded in the riches of their ability. And I bear witness that according to their ability and yes, beyond their ability, they were freely willing. And I love verse 4. The Macedonians were imploring 
with much urgency that Paul would accept their giving. They were so wretchedly poor that they were afraid that Paul wouldn't allow them to participate. But they did, and they abounded in it. Uh, the word bathus uh, is, is translated deep poverty. There's a dude about 100 years ago, before any pictures had ever been taken of the depths of the sea. Some of you will remember Jacques Cousteau and his program of underwater exploring. You have to be about my age to remember him. But before him, this guy made about a six or eight foot round ball and uh, with a door where you could get in and a, and a window and a light, a cable attached to it with an air hose. And that was the first time they were able to go down into the depths of the sea and uncover some of the wonders that were there. What did the guy call that round ball? He called it a, a bathosphere from this word, describing the depths of their poverty. They, it was a wretched poverty, and yet these are the ones that Paul is using as an example because they gave according to their ability and beyond. It seems to be universally true that hardship reveals character and values as it did in the case of the Macedonians. The late British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones loved to tell the story of the farmer who had a cow that gave birth to twin calves. At supper, to his wife he said, Old boss, he had twins today. The Lord has been so good to us that I think we should give one of those to him and keep the other for ourselves. A couple of days later, <clears throat> the farmer came to supper a bit quiet and somber, and his wife asked, What's wrong? And he responded, I was just in the barn, and the Lord's calf has died. The true test of our values isn't the good times. And all God asks of us as his stewards is that we be faithfully generous, and in return it's amazing what the years will bring. I can certainly give testimony to that. Now I'm going to throw out a question here that, that I've pondered for many years, off and on. And it's a question I have not come to a satisfactory answer. And I suspect I may never. I don't know, but I'm going to throw it out here for you to ponder. Maybe you can help me out on this. Here's the question. If sacrifice is absent from our giving, have we truly given? If sacrifice is absent from our giving, have we truly given? something to think about. I'm not going to suggest an answer. The Macedonians gave with a sacrificial spirit. And verse 5 tells us why. They first gave themselves to the Lord, then they gave. You know, Justin spoke to this last week, this order of things. When it comes to, to dealing with sin, we can become sin managers and we will fail. Or we can begin by first turning to the Lord, and then we can turn from our sin. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says that the Thessalonians first turned to God from idols. And here, when we place ourselves and our, our focus on the Lord, 
The Lord produces generosity. When we truly turn to Him, He does heart surgery. And generosity just becomes a natural corollary to living out our faith. It is only in the doing that we discover that the primary purpose of generosity is the benefit of the giver. You never lose when you give. And you're never diminished when in obedience to the Lord you give. We also discover, I believe, that giving puts and keeps things in perspective. We understand that it is a grace that comes from the Lord. Now, Paul turns from the poor Macedonians to a second group of people, rich people, the Corinthians. In verse 6, he says, complete this grace in you as well. That's his first instruction, complete it. You thought about it long ago, you were enthusiastic, you've grown cold, now look, it's time to do what you said you were going to do. Paul sent Timothy to them to encourage them to follow through. Paul is addressing here the issue of good intentions. Good intentions are meaningless if there's no follow-through. And good intentions are destructive if our good intentions are verbalized and they've raised an expectation in others and then we don't follow through. That's, just, that's a character flaw. The second thing he says is abound in this grace. <clears throat> Verse 7, but as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in diligence, in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. That's pretty plain, but often it's different. Why? I suspect that in the reality is that our possessions are more important to us than we're willing to admit much of the time. And that is exactly why God has given the grace of giving to us. It's the benefit to us. Keeps things in perspective. Gives us a means of expressing God's glory by ministering to others and so on. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul previously asked them, what do you have that you did not receive? Even the ability to make money. There is nothing in our life, absolutely nothing, that we are not dependent upon God's grace for. Everything, even the air we breathe. Remember, God owns it all. And then he instructs them to sincerely live out this grace in their lives. Verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Paul comes clean here and says, look, I, I spoke of the Macedonians because I am testing the sincerity of your heart in this matter of giving. And comparing ourselves to others is not a good thing. In most instances, it leads to pride or self-pity. But when we look in a healthy way to positive examples, it can instruct and it can motivate, as here. Paul saved the supreme example to the end. Poor people, rich people, and the richest person The Lord Jesus, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty 
might become rich. Just a minute ago, I posed the question, if the element of sacrifice is absent, have we truly given? I leave that with you to ponder, but as you do, I want you to listen to these words from Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross, so that he who knew no sin was made sin to be, was made to be sin for us, that, he might be, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. These first nine verses of the chapter constitute Paul's basic purpose in addressing this whole issue of stewardship. He was urging them by the example of the Macedonians primarily, and of course the example of Christ, to follow through with the commitments that they had made in the, in the recent past. But to this, Paul adds some practical advice. And verse 10 begins, and to this I give advice. And his first advice is regarding impediments to giving. And then he's going to give a couple of imperatives. But the impediments to giving, he lists four. And the first is procrastination, verse 10. And I give this advice, it is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. We've all heard of round to it. When I get around to it, we've heard of mulligans in golf. Mulligans, just like in golf, don't count. The key word here is now. And that is pretty solid advice in any area of life when we want to establish new, healthy patterns of living, don't wait. If you know it's right, do it. Do it now. I've, I've never found anything else that, that works more than that. Every Sunday, I have a deadline. I know I have a sermon to preach. And that means I've got to spend some time, a lot of time, in research and preparation. And there's one way to get at it. It's the first hour on Monday morning is to get at it. If you wait, pretty soon it's Thursday. And then you're cramming. I've just learned that anything in life, procrastination is a killer. Another one for me is, is discouragement. In verse 12, he says, for if there is first a, a willing mind, the key there is willing. This was their genuine, heartfelt first response a year ago. Many times, the way to defeat discouragement, which they seem to be at this point, is to return your focus to the goal, to the original motivation. He's referring them back to a year ago. That is classic 
a classic way to, to challenge discouragement in our life is to go back to the beginning and ask yourself, why in the first place? I know, I'm sure I've shared this in one of my favorite stories. Uh, I'm at that age where I know I repeat myself, I just don't know when. So I just admit it up front and I'm good to go. On my wedding night, old Neil Beery put his arm around me and he said, Son, always remember your courting days. Those days when you were twitterpated and you just couldn't wait to be married to this wonderful, precious jewel. Well, you know, jewels, human jewels, tend to wrinkle with age and so on and turn gray. And uh, that works both ways, by the way. And I have found that that advice for me, when marriage, there's discouragement. Marriage isn't easy. It, it takes a lot of investment and hard work to have a healthy marriage. And in those times of discouragement, whether it be marriage or anything else, to go back and remind yourself in marriage, I made a covenant commitment before God and this woman to love her, actively love her, till death do us part. And it is important for me to go back and remind myself of the covenant I made, the value I placed on this woman, and to be reminded of how twitterpated I was back then. Boy, it's awful quiet this morning. Anybody here know what the word twitterpated means? You watched Disneyland, uh, the skunk, and the, what was, it, what was that one? I knew you knew. <laughs> In all things, our enthusiasm is determined by the value of the goal. Procrastination, discouragement, and inadequacy. Verse 12, for if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. Did you catch that? If there is first a willing mind. If your heart is first right, it is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And this is the classic illustration, but I love this, this verse. It's found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, beginning at verse 41. The widow's might. Now Jesus sat opposite the temple or the treasury and saw how the people put money in the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make eight quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. You ever wonder how much two mites is, was? Two mites, as it says in the text, equaled one quadrums. And one quadrums equaled one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Now you know. <laughs> Less than a nickel. The point Jesus made was that the bottom line isn't the amount, 
but the response of the heart. Giving is a grace, first and last. <clears throat> Paul concludes with a, with a, I believe, an infrequently but much needed advice. <clears throat> Irresponsibility, verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Paul wasn't asking them to reward irresponsible behavior. This is important. The need in Judea in the mother church was genuine. It addresses the issue of enabling or giving out of guilt-ridden manipulation. It's the issue of responding to an emotional appeal for money without checking out the legitimacy or the credibility of the appeal. Now, this is not a church illustration, but it's one you may all identify with. I, through the years, have regularly got these, these appeals for money from the local firemen or police association. And the appeal is a computer-generated appeal. And when that happens, 85 to 90% of the money you may donate goes to the company who made a contract with the police and firemen to raise funds. So 10 cents out of every dollar you give goes to the police or the firemen. Folks, when I get those calls, there's an immediate on my telephone. I can go down to the fire station and give them a dollar, and that's 90 cents more than they would have got if I had given a dollar to the people on the phone. That's not good stewardship to give because, oh, it's police or it's fire, whatever. Uh, there's so many things like that, and especially in, in Christian circles. My brother-in-law was, for a year and a half, he's with Samaritan Purse, he was flying helicopters in Haiti. He's most recently been in Liberia. <clears throat> and he said there was a street there on the main, what's the main city in Haiti? Yeah. Prince, part of Prince. That's it. He said there was a whole street lined up with over a hundred Christian ministries. Ninety or or more percent of these ministries were absolutely totally bogus. They had to be located in the country with legal reasons, and they would give 5% to an orphanage or whatever, but they pocketed the rest of it. It's tragic. I, this is especially an issue uh, among older people, and I quite honestly have to confess to you that I've had to uh, help my mother with this regard because she's, she was giving out money that was just unbelievable to, to organizations and people that were just totally bogus. And there was one, and there was a missionary that I knew, who had left the ministry and was working in a secular job, still collecting money from my mother. I went through the roof on that one and helped her to understand uh, you're not under obligation to continue giving in that situation. God calls us to be stewards of our 
every aspect of our life, especially giving. And in the issue of giving, or monies collected in an organization, particularly in a church, Paul gives a couple of uh, imperatives in that situation as well. And the first is to apply strict accountability. As you read through the text, there was Paul, there was Titus, and probably Barnabas, and then there was one or two from Macedonia and from Achaia. And they were all together uh, commissioned to administrate the money. And the point I'm making, never entrust the handling of money to a single individual and only to those who have been authorized to handle it. Uh, It it avoids a lot of uh, accusation and potential uh, heartache. And the reason for that is to avoid sloppy administration. Now look at verse 20. Avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us. If you have ever been if you have ever been entrusted with the administration of donated funds, circle verse 20. Put it on the mirror in your bathroom and attach it to the refrigerator in the kitchen. When when we moved to Anchorage to to start a church from absolute scratch, there were two families. And we had the responsibility, I was serving under the Brethren Home Mission Council, to uh, incorporate with the state, write a constitution, apply for the 501c3 tax exemption, uh, do the covenant and uh, some other things. And then we were to set up a bookkeeping system for the church. And my immediate superior, Bob Thompson, said to me, set up your books as if they are being run by crooks. Boy, that was good advice. What that does, it eliminates so many opportunities for embezzlement or misappropriation of funds. But the other thing that it does, it protects those who are doing the administration from accusation or from suspicion. And every church hangs on a thin thread of credibility. When finances are abused, trust is broken and it's forever to be restored. Gordon MacDonald put it this way, those who handle money in a church are like those in the military who handle high explosives. It's volatile. It can kill you. With these pieces of advice. Paul goes back to where he began, and I just want to read the last verse, verse 24. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of your boasting, of of our boasting on your behalf. What he was saying was, do it, do it now. I want to close with two statements and two questions. First, claiming God's grace without receiving God's Son is an impossibility. All this talk about generosity and giving and stewardship is meaningless unless one first comes to the source of grace, God's Son. And secondly, 
Walking in God's grace without giving one's treasure is incomplete. I think we know that intuitively. And two questions. Do you really believe God owns it all? Do you really believe that? That the 90% that you didn't give uh, is his too? And finally, is your checkbook a silent witness to the grace of giving or a selfish heart? I challenge you to check it out. Heavenly Father, one thing that concerns me after a message like this is that someone might misunderstand and conclude that giving is required to be accepted by God. Father, what you want is our heart. When you have our heart, you have a steward with an open hand. And Father, it's then and only then that we discover that the grace of giving was given to us primarily for our benefit, even though, Father, it benefits others as well. I pray, therefore, Father, in light of this message, that our hearts would be turned to you and our lives transformed, that as we live out the life of Christ in our daily life, we would be noted as people who are overly generous. What a testimony to a watching world. These things I pray in Jesus' name, amen.